dedicate every message to the Lord. This morning, I'd like to dedicate this message to my Lord and also to my good friend, Yvonne Noldesty. If you haven't had him into your home on a personal level, he is one of the most uh, exciting, interesting, and fun people to be with that you will ever get to know. And uh, I'd say grab up all the time that's left if you can. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. We are a very blessed people. And not by any fault of our own, Father. It's, it's all of your grace. And yet, Father, we know that you have people in other portions of the world that aren't experiencing the material and physical blessings that we experience. And we think of the Haitians. We know that these are lovely people that you love dearly. We thank you for Yvonne and for the effective ministry he sustained in that country for so many years. And sometimes under unbelievable difficult circumstances. And yet now you've brought him here in Miami. And we do pray that you continue to use him in a powerful way. And Father, we thank you that you've reminded him and us through him that you're a God that can care for our deepest needs. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John, repeat after me. I, John, take thee, Mary, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. John, if you'll put the ring on Mary's left hand and repeat after me, with this ring I seal my pledge of love and devotion in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's something very special about people who make a commitment to one another and who stand by each other for 20, 30, 50 years or more, however many years the Lord gives us on this earth. There's something very, very precious about the quality in a person's life called loyalty. I want to talk about loyalty today, being loyal. And, of course, when we talk about loyalty, one of the problems that we have is that Usually, we think of how other people need to be loyal to us. We think of loyalty in terms of what others who are close to us would bring into the relationship. We expect them to be loyal. But this morning, I'd like to ask you to turn the tables for just a moment and ask yourself, as I'm asking myself, this all-important question, are we loyal? Are we faithful and devoted to those with whom we have built a close personal relationship. It may and should be obviously our wife or our husband, our children, our parents. It may also be a friend, someone that loves you deeply. Have you been loyal to them? They're loyal to you. Particularly this morning, I would ask you to think about a relationship in which you were faithful and devoted to someone who eventually led you in over your head. I've known people like that. 
and I'm sure you have. A relationship that clearly comes to my mind and one that's a beautiful illustration of what I'm talking about, I think of my father-in-law, Dr. Paul Bauman, who passed away a year ago, but who remained faithful and devoted to his wife for eight years while she languished with Parkinson's disease. A serious, serious case of it where she couldn't even, at the end, uh, was completely in a comatose state. And yet he would go there every day and he would talk to her and he'd read scripture to her and he'd pray with her and he'd sing hymns with her because he was a loyal husband. And yet he didn't know that that loyalty would take him into waters that would be over his head. The Lord sustained him. The price of loyalty can sometimes be staggering. And that is why loyalty is such a prized virtue, even in the church. In the days of the New Testament, Christians became so identified with each other in a particular location that their church reflected their character, their common character and circumstances to the point that when you wrote to the church, you were writing to each one of them. They took it personally. They weren't on the outside looking in through the windows. This was especially the the case with the church at Smyrna. Not much is known about the believers who made up the church at Smyrna except for one thing. They were loyal to Jesus Christ. They were loyal to Jesus Christ. What a beautiful quality to be remembered for. They were so faithful and devoted to Him that out of the seven churches to whom our Lord Jesus Christ addresses in Revelation 2 and 3, that they along with other one other church, the church at Philadelphia that was small and insignificant, that these two churches are the only two churches that received no condemnation. The Lord did not rebuke them. Two out of seven. It was a loyalty, however, that came with a very high price. I invite you to follow along as we read about this in the church, about the church of Smyrna in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. There are Bibles. We've just got some new ones. I don't know if they're in the pews yet, but they should be in the back there if you need them. I didn't prepare a note sheet today because of the nature of the message. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. 
Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in these words to this church, makes one thing very clear. The church at Smyrna was a loyal church. But it was a loyalty that had with it a very high price tag. Let's look at the four things that he outlines there that sort of put in context just what this price tag was. First, works. I know your works. Our Lord Jesus Christ likened churches to lampstands who were to hold up the light of the truth before the world. The light of the truth was to be beamed out through their works and their relationship to one another as they cared for one another. And as the works done by the church itself reached out into a hostile community and world to see that the gospel was made plain and clear, that new believers would be discipled and taught the Word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In this church, the church at Smyrna, even though the people did not did indeed let their light so shine before the city of Smyrna that they might see their good works. The people of that city said thanks, but no thanks. They did not glorify the Father, but turned on the church and tried to snuff the light out themselves. What was the price of loyalty in this church? Jesus continues, second Tribulation, the word means affliction, oppression. Third, poverty, as we'll see later, extreme poverty. Fourth, blasphemy, that is, not blasphemy against God in this case, but slander or abusive speech directed against them, the church, the people of the church, the individuals, the families, the children, the parents. And lastly, prison, even death. This was the price of loyalty in this church. But just exactly what do these words mean? That's why I didn't give you a note sheet. This is not something that really we need to take notes about. We need a picture. One that will never leave our mind. What picture would our Lord want us to have in our minds as we hear these words? History provides a much better understanding and appreciation of just what kind of price these Christians were paying for their loyalty. The name Smyrna, let's begin with that. It's related to the word myrrh. Most of you or many of you I'm sure are familiar that myrrh was a spice that was used in the process of embalming a dead body. It was associated with death. But in order for this spice to give off its fragrance, 
It had to be first crushed and bruised. It was as a it was a gift that was given to Jesus Christ at his birth. And it was very emblematic of his suffering and death. Likewise, here it is the name Smyrna that was associated with a church in that particular city that Jesus selected to receive the letter. And it was emblematic of what was and would be happening in this church as well. It was not easy to share this message with those of us who have only known Western-style Christianity. And I'm part of this process. Furthermore, in a day of 40-hour work weeks, abundant prosperity, it's not easy to interest well-fed, well-clothed, well-housed Christians in the Smyrna brand of Christian loyalty. And for those of us who are interested, and I hope that everybody here is to some extent, it's not easy to listen to these things. I'll tell you, it's not easy for me to listen to what I'm going to share with you. Early on in my Christian life, I was involved in an organization that most of you are familiar with, Campus Crusade for Christ. And in those days, the first thing you had to learn was the four-law booklet. And in the four laws, there's the first law. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, as a young college student in Ohio State University, I said, I can go with that. And I sort of twisted it. Sort of abused the teaching of this first law, which was a good law. I mean, I'm not, this has nothing to do with Campus Crusade, which I think is a wonderful Christian ministry. On the other hand, I was out on the campus telling students that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I would leave the impression that if you believe in Christ, everything in your life would work out beautifully. After all, God wants us to be happy and to enjoy life, right? I doubt if this method, as abused by me, would have worked well in the church at Smyrna. Years ago, there was an article in Newsweek magazine that involved an interview with a very powerful conservative evangelical leader, one whom we would respect for the most part. And what grieved me as I read this article was a picture of this leader reclining in his chaise lounge. And behind him was a palatial mansion and a pool. And the newsman asked him, to what do you attribute your success and affluence? How can you harmonize that with your Christian faith? To which he answered, I think affluence and I think success is not wrong. And I would agree with him. But then he went on to say this, God blesses those who honor him. Now I wonder how those in the church of Smyrna would have received that quote, God blesses those who honor him. I wonder how they would receive that down in Haiti at a church like ours right now where they're preaching the word of God. And many of the people maybe haven't had anything to eat for a week. And what they eat, we would not even think was worthy of throwing in the trash can. 
Truly, God does bless those who honor Him. But the implication is that God blesses those who honor Him with comfortable life of personal peace and affluence, as Francis Schaeffer used to say. And that flies in the face of both history and Scripture. Throughout history, church history, I should say, there have been few churches like the churches in contemporary evangelical America or Canada or the West. We're in a minority. We've experienced great prosperity and abundance and blessing. But I don't think that that's directly related to the fact that we have honored God. Truthfully, I think we have failed to honor Him in many ways. I think the reason He has chosen to bless this nation and use this nation might best be summarized by the inscription at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty when it says, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest-tossed, to me. I lift up my lamp beside the golden door. Check out 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, where we are told that God seems to delight in choosing the weak, the ignorant, and the base things of this world to confound the strong, the wise, and the noble. At one time, this nation was a nation of losers. And God says, I, I love to work with a group of losers. But today in our churches, we tend to reflect the values of our nation, which says we are rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. However, in the history of the world, of the church, we're in a minority. The majority of churches that have made up the history of the church since our Lord Jesus Christ left this world, have not enjoyed such prosperity. In fact, the majority of them have known some unbelievable hardship and suffering. And one of these churches was the church at Smyrna. The church at Smyrna was located in the city of Smyrna, which played a key role in the history of the church. What's this city like? The city of Smyrna was very rich and affluent city. As a city, it continually competed with Ephesus as the chief city of Asia. And even Ephesus could not make this claim that Smyrna made when it says that it was first in size and first in beauty. They vied back and forth like cities do in our country sometimes. We may be equal on most levels, but we're first in size and we have a bigger city and we have a more beautiful city. If any of you are familiar with that area of the world, it is a beautiful city. I was there probably 30 years ago. And I remember the beautiful streets lined with trees. I believe it was a beautiful setting with a harbor. And it was like that in the days of the Apostle Paul and the apostles as well. It contained many beautiful streets lined with trees. One street was partly paved with gold as it led up to the top of Mount Pegasus. The whole city was surrounded by hills. And it had a beautiful harbor that opened out into the sea. Within the city, they had a stadium. 
and a library. And they boasted the largest public theater in all of Asia. This was a classy city. It's the kind of city we'd like to go to, like San Francisco. Like Ephesus, it was a seaport town, and it had a very mixed and transient population. Among the mixed population that was a part of the city was a great population of Jews. And they had a very influential synagogue. Most noteworthy about Smyrna was also her loyalty to Rome. About 350 years before the time that this letter was written, 264 B.C., Smyrna took sides with Rome in the Carthaginian Wars. After that, it was the first to build a temple to the god of Rome and later build a temple to the emperor Tiberius. This allegiance to Rome, plus the fact of a large Jewish community, made Christians scarce. There was a lot of hostility and a lot of struggle, and it became difficult for a person to really remain a Christian in this city of Smyrna. It's not like it would be living in Afghanistan or Iran today. I don't know if any any of us here would really want to go over there as a Christian and worship. That would have been like what it was like to be in Smyrna. The results were that the people were socially ostracized. They lost their prosperity, their personal rights. Whenever they had something that happened in the city that was not favorable, they would say, blame it on the Christians. In fact, they, they would go on and they would get upset over the fact that many were converting, the Jews in particular would egg this on, and they would get upset because there were so many people in the Jewish community that were converting over to Christianity. And the result was they gave them beatings and imprisonments, and in many cases, death itself. Smyrna was a city where Christians knew persecution. They also knew great poverty. The two usually go hand in hand. However, I believe, as do others, that the letter to the church at Smyrna was not just a letter to that church alone, but to the churches that were about to make up an age in the history of the church from the first century, about 95 A.D., all the way to the third century, fourth century, that is, 325 A.D., 200 years. That was when Constantine declared the whole Roman Empire Christian. Up to that time, and from the first century to that time, is a period in which Philip Schaff, Philip Schaff calls the, the age of persecution and martyrdom. I preached through the seven churches back a number of years ago in the, in the church in Bozeman, Montana. And there are, I think, 12 or 10 or 12 volumes of this book right here. I went through all of those volumes because I believe the seven churches parallel the various ages of the church. And I'm going to be sharing a lot more about the, the history of the church as we move through it. And this is one good study that I think will help us to understand something of the richness of our heritage as a church. The other book I'll explain in a minute. Philip Schaff, the one that wrote this huge 10-volume compilation of church history, called this the age of persecution and martyrdom. That's from 95 A.D. to 325 A.D. And it should be on the screen behind me. 
In general, it was recognized as the second age in church history. Many Bible teachers divide the age, this age of persecution and martyrdom, they divide it into ten parts based on ten emperors that were prominent. There were other emperors, but these were prominent. And the list should be behind you. But some of you are familiar with the names, Domitian, Marcus Aurelius, Diocletian. There are various familiar names there. But all of these emperors that are on the list behind me basically convey the thought that there was great persecution that went on during their reign against the church. And so that's how this age is broken up. Although the list does not include, as I said, every emperor, these were the emperors under whom the persecution was carried out. The fact that Christianity claimed to be the only true religion, sound familiar? The only true religion in the world, the fact that its many, many converts were taken from both Jews as well as pagans, threatened the status quo. And the very instant existence of the Roman state religion, which was emperor-oriented. Furthermore, the masses of common people that lived in the city, remember it was one of the most sizable cities at the time. Today it's a city of about three million, two and a half to three million. At that time, I, I don't really know quite how large it was, but it was a large, large city. And the people, the common people who were mostly polytheists, that is, they believed in many gods, they abhorred believers of the one God, Jesus Christ. And thus they claimed that the Christians were atheists, enemies of the state, enemies of the God of Rome. This is coming from the common people. They slandered the Christians and they said things that were not true. They called the Christians homosexuals. They said they were committed, committing incest. They said they were involved in cannibalism. This is what the blasphemy, blasphemy is referring to that Jesus spoke of, that they would be verbally slandered and abused. They said they were involved in cannibalism. All kinds of slanderous accusations were made against these Christians during this period of time so that a proverb arose like the one that you have up there on the screen. If it did not send rain, lay it on the Christians. If God did not send rain, lay it on the Christians. The, perse the persecutions usually started because of some inner turmoil within the Roman world itself or the Roman Empire. There were military defeats. There were great floods. There was pestilence. There was famine. There were earthquakes. There were all kinds of natural catastrophes. And whenever something happened, people want heads to fly. Is that not what we do in our country? Well, in that country, that's what you do. In that part of the world, it said, the people would cry out and they would automatically say, the gods are angry because we let the Christians live. The gods are mad at us. Mad at the Christians. And therefore, we must appease the gods by sacrificing the Christians. We must persecute the Christians in order to satisfy the wrath of our gods so the populace being agitated by the Jews who would cry out in their ears and stir things up, cried out, throw the Christians to the lions. And then these weak superstitious leaders, that's, the, the tables were entirely turned. You usually think of these Roman emperors as these strong men. These were wimps. The people wielded the power. And these wimp leaders that were, were 
serving over the Roman Empire at the time, you know, wanted always to just keep the people happy. We're moving toward that, by the way, in this country. Just keep the people happy. And the people are crying out for Christian blood. We need to give them Christian blood or we'll lose our position as emperor. We don't want to riot. Now for the difficult portion. What kind of persecutions did Christians suffer? I went through a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you don't have it, it will bring tears to your eyes if you read it, as some of what I'm going to share probably will as well. It goes through what Christians suffered and a great deal of what they suffered, the cruelty. I mean, Christians have been shot and hung and killed in mass throughout most decades, most of the of the various centuries. And our century is no exception. I mean, the 20th century was terrible in that way. But there was exceptional cruelty that was shown toward Christians during this time that boggles the imagination as to how man could do that to a man, even your worst enemy. I think of David's words when he was talking with God and the punishment that he was for a particular sin where he would numbered the people. Because he didn't trust in the Lord, he was saying, uh, Samuel said to him, do you want the Lord to hand you into the hands of men or do you want the Lord to mete out the punishment? He says, I'll take the Lord's punishment any day. Man's unbelievably cruel when you turn him loose, particularly in a crowd. Listen to this. What kind of persecutions do the Christians suffer? This is what they suffered. And what they suffered would make Hitler's concentration camps look like second rate. Christians were crucified. They were impaled. They were filleted. That is, their skin was pulled off. And they were left to the elements. They were butchered with axes. They were burned at the stake. They were burned on gridirons. They were shoveled or shoved, pushed off of high places with their hands tied behind their back so that their body would crush their head when they fell and hit the ground. They were beheaded. They were stretched out on racks until their arms and legs were pulled off of their bodies. They were thrown on the horns of wild animals. They were tied to the tails of wild bulls. They were tied to wheels, and the wheel would be rolled over them on the pavement. They were torn and ripped and devoured by wild beasts. This was not just true of men, but of women and children. It was true of nobles and senators, as well as slaves and soldiers. This was a classless persecution. If you name the name of Christ... You're toast. In one instance, a woman who had seven sons, and she was asked to sacrifice to the gods of Rome. She said, I will not. She refused, and so first they scourged her, beat her with whips. Then they hung her up by her hair. And when that didn't kill her, they put a great big stone around her neck and dumped her into the river Then her seven sons were stabbed repeatedly and butchered. The last one was sawed in half. Another woman was stretched out on a rack being pulled apart and her small toddler was standing in front of her watching his mother die. And all his mother would have had to do to say, to get out of this was to say, I renounce Christ. She refused. She would not be taken off the rack. The child continued to cry. The governor came over and was so incensed that he took the child and threw the child on the pavement, bashing his brains out. 
That's the kind of cruelty that existed in those days. It exists in this days too. How many times have we heard of on talk about the burning tires? If they'd have had tires in that day, they probably would have used those too. The tire necklace where they burn the tire, put it over top of the person, douse them in gasoline. Terrible. What was the price of loyalty in this church and during this age of the history of the church? Jesus says again, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but you are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear of any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Again, first, works. Works which hold up the truth of Christ in a world that hates him. The church was under the obligation to do the works of holding up the truth in what they and how they related to each other, but also in just speaking out that they believed in Christ, that he died and rose again. That was holding up the works. And for that, they were killed. We've got a situation like that right now. I know most of you are familiar with it. Abdul Rahman holding up a Bible before the international press is accused of committing the greatest sin in the whole Muslim world, which is converting to Christianity, and he deserves to be killed. One Muslim cleric, Abdul Rayolf, says. Now, because he came out of the closet... And did the most basic of all Christian works. He said he was a Christian. He may lose his head, literally. Or, if they let him off, what do you think they're going to do? Probably toss him out on the street. And then he gets to contend with the crowds who will probably tear him apart limb by limb. Kill the Christians. Kill this Muslim. That's what they're quoted as saying. No wonder Jesus said tribulation follows a time of persecution or works and persecution follows tribulation. The second thing is tribulation, affliction. John 15:8. the world hates you, you know that it hated me first. If the world hates you, Jesus said, know this, that it hated me first. Times have not changed in 1,800 years. The church in Smyrna speaks to our day as it did in that day, as it has in all times where there's been persecution and martyrdom. You see, what God is doing in these seven churches, he's taking one church and he's going into the actual events that are part of that church and talking to that church personally like he would to our church. But in that, he's also using that church as a model, as a, an example to other churches that are going to endure similar circumstances or who have committed similar sins and failures for their Lord. And he's also using that church to speak of a period in the history of the church. But in reality, that church speaks to all churches in all times that are going through this kind of thing. I know Yvonne could fill our ears with the horrors that have been experienced by Christians in Haiti. The price of loyalty. Tribulation follows works. And poverty follows tribulation. Notice what he says next. Third, poverty. 
extreme poverty. In the church in Smyrna and in the age of persecutions, Christians were socially and economically ostracized. In many cases, even their families would have nothing to do with them. They lost their ability to earn a living. Whatever wealth they had was gone soon. Now the world, the word for poverty here is, is an interesting word. There's two words in the Greek language for poverty. One means you're poor superficially. That means that you only have the basics to live on. And the other word is you're poor and that you have nothing at all. Not even the shirt on your back, so to speak. And that's the word that's used here. They've literally lost the clothes off their back. Christ looks down on this impoverished church and he says, I see and I know your works, your tribulation and your poverty. The cost of being loyal to Jesus Christ continues to mount. Lastly, Jesus says it will cost one more thing. Blasphemy. You're going to be slandered and abused. I know your blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear these things that you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death. In this sentence, Jesus introduces the fifth cost of being loyal. Not only blasphemy, but then he adds prison and even death. I know the blasphemy of, which, of them which say they are Jews and are not, Jesus says, but are of the synagogue of Satan. These were Jews who claimed to worship God and to follow his laws. But they had rejected their own Messiah. In the minds of Christians, they were Messiah haters. Not all of them. Many of them converted. But many of them did not. And therefore, if they are Messiah haters, if they hate their Messiah, they aren't true Jews. That's the point here. They're Jews and yet they are not. They say they're Jews and yet they are not. They were Jews only in name. And they went out and they blasphemed. Jewish and Christian and Gentile believers in Christ. They slandered them, as we saw earlier. They accused them of all kinds of things, of being homosexuals and of, of being an incestuous and so forth, all kinds of things they could think of, cannibalism. They accused them of every immoral practice. They were looked upon as the lowest dregs of society. They were scum in that particular world. And they were accused and blasphemed for their loyalty to Jesus Christ. But then the Lord says that's not the worst. Verse 10 says, Fear none of these things which you are about to suffer. Behold, even more things are going to come which are going to be worse. The devil is going to cast you into prison. And the word for prison here, I think, is in one sense literal. And in some cases, symbolic. I think it's literal in one sense in that there may very well have been ten days of persecution that were very intense that fell upon the church. Many people, also many Bible teachers, take it as referring to the ten, the ten Roman emperors that made up the church's history from, two, from 100 to 300 A.D. That's possible. Good, good reasoning. 
But ultimately, I think what Jesus is saying here is that whether you take it historically or symbolically or literally, what it all comes down to is you're going to be thrown into a pit of suffering. Prison could be used in the sense of a pit. A pit of suffering. And when you're thrown into it, it's going to go on ten days. That is, it's going to have a beginning, but it's also going to have an end. What Jesus is making clear is that he wants the church in Smyrna, the church in the second and third century, and churches in all places and all times that are going, undergoing persecution and martyrdom to remain faithful, loyal, devoted to him until death itself takes them. The price of loyalty will be very high, but stay loyal. Stay faithful. Stay devoted, he says, and I will sustain you in the face of death and I will make it worth your while. He will sustain you in the face of death and he will make it worth your while to endure this persecution, to remain loyal to him, even martyrdom. Next week, we're going to listen to him speak to these very two questions. How will he make it worth our while? How will he sustain us in death? We'll look at that from this passage next week. But in closing, I want to leave you with a story about a dear old man that comes out of the oral and written tradition of the church. And it's not questioned, so I think it's true. His name was Polycarp. He was converted to Christianity, tradition says, by the Apostle John. He became the elder and the chief overseer of the church at Smyrna. When John wrote this letter, it was probably a letter that would be given or sent to Polycarp. And then Polycarp would share it with his congregation. In time, it would be passed to other churches, of course. I think that as John wrote this letter, he knew what was ahead for Polycarp and for his church, and tears undoubtedly came to his eyes as he thought about the unbelievable persecution and hardship that was ahead for them. And it did happen. When Polycarp was 86 years old, when John wrote this, he was a young man. I don't know how young, but he was young. But tradition says, the, the, the records seem to indicate, that at the time of his martyrdom, he was 86 years old. It occurred in the middle of the second century, somewhere around 50, 150 A.D. The people of Smyrna were gathered together in their stadium, and they brought 11 Christians from a nearby town into the stadium to be torn apart by the wild beast as part of the entertainment for the afternoon. One of the young men who was being ripped apart by the wild beast stood there and said, I believe in Jesus Christ. And because he was so strong, even as he was being ripped apart in his commitment to Christ and in his testimony to Christ, many people in the stadium became Christians. Numbers of them were converted to Christ. Well, this incensed the people. Can you imagine what had happened in Afghanistan right now? As as that man makes that testimony and thousands of Muslims start turning Christ, do you imagine what would happen? I don't care if we bring in nuclear weapons. We aren't going to stop what's going to happen. In that case, it didn't either. This incensed the people so much that they couldn't believe 
these other people would believe in Christ. And so they yelled out, Death to the Christians! Some other enemies cried out, Destroy the wicked men! Let Polycarp be sought for! He was the head of the church there in Smyrna. And so Polycarp was sought, and they brought him before the Roman governor on a charge of atheism. And you think, that's strange. He believes in God, doesn't he? That's the problem. Because he wouldn't acknowledge their gods. He was an atheist. An infidel, as they would say in the part of the world that we're familiar with. He was repeatedly encouraged to change his mind, renounce Christ, and do homage and sacrifice to their gods. And this is what Polycarp said, his infamous words, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The governor reacted bitterly and said, I'll have you burn for those words unless you change your mind. Polycarp said, The fire that you threaten to burn me with only burns for a time, and soon it is extinguished. There is a fire you know not of, the fire of judgment to come, the fire of eternal punishment, the fire reserved for the ungodly. But why do you wait? Do what you want. The governor was incensed, and he said, Polycarp has confessed to being a Christian And the shout went up from the stadium, burn him alive, burn him alive, burn him alive. And so the Jews, who were very active in instigating hostility, they went out on the Sabbath to gather wood to bring it back for the the bonfire they were going to have and set under the feet of Polycarp. They finally tie him to the stake and they light it. And as Polycarp hung there, dying in the flames, he sang him, saying that it was his privilege to be worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. Polycarp was loyal to the end. And the price of loyalty can sometimes be very high. In a marriage, in a family, in friendship. But loyalty is what our Lord desires from us, just as we desire it from Him. He's looking for those disciples who will be faithful and devoted, even in the face of death. I do not know what, if any, terrible ordeals awaits me or you. But whatever happens in our life, one thing I know our Lord wants from us is that we would remain loyal until death. It's an awesome challenge. And next week we're going to look at how to meet that challenge and the power and wisdom of Christ. But let's don't miss the point that he wants us to leave with today. He wants us to remain loyal to him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word, for how it comes right at us in such a way that one minute it brings us to tears, the next minute, Father, it helps us to be resolved in our hearts to stand true for our Savior. I know we have people in our church today who are struggling, who are suffering, some silently, some we know the suffering. Father, death may threaten some. Other problems threaten others. Sometimes the suffering and the problems we we see happen in our life have nothing to do with what we've done 
They just happened. Father, we thank you that this is an opportunity that we can stand tall for our Lord, that we can be loyal and show our loyalty to a world that is skeptical. We thank you, Father, for the privilege in Jesus' name.